0: Hello, this is episode 17 and my guest today is Andrew Jensen, the managing editor of the Alaska Journal of Commerce. Today we're going to talk about an article he recently wrote, which was widely distributed, what I learned cleaning up a homeless camp. That will be the focus of the discussion, but we'll also talk about what is going on in the Alaska business community, oil prices, and perhaps even spend some time talking about the future. This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at conversationscom Andrew, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Well, I'm
1: glad to be here. Thanks for uh, for the invite, Casey.
0: Yeah, and with everything changing so fast, just for context, anybody who listens to this down the road, today is May 1st, 2020, middle of the COVID pandemic, everything else that's going on, so as we're talking about that, keep that in mind, Um, so things that we talk about could easily change, and one of the benefits, we were talking before we started recording, one of the benefits for Alaska Conversations in particular, is that with everybody staying at home my audio quality has now gone from average to I'm just as good as everybody else. I mean, I I think I'm doing just as well as Joe Rogan now.
1: (laughs) Well, that's good. He's sort of a gold standard podcaster.
0: Hey, you know, (laughs) every, everybody's got terrible audio quality, but, um, (laughs) so for any good discussion, I think it's important for the two parties to talk a little bit about their priors or where they're coming from their leanings. Um, and I am a natural skeptic. So I I believe that we, we have a lots of data available to us. We bring in, we gather all of this data, and uh, usually we draw the wrong conclusion. So I think we look at the simple, easy answer, and we never really go, okay, what's the second or third order effect? So that's why I started Alaska Conversations. I think that people need to think about things a little bit deeper. I want to have conversations with people sides of the aisles, all sorts of views, and it doesn't have to be political, it doesn't have to be anything. So, you are with the Alaska Journal of Commerce. What is, what's the goal of the Alaska Journal of Commerce? What do you guys focus on, and uh, what are your priors? Well,
1: the, uh, the Alaska Journal of Commerce, it's the state's longest running uh, weekly business publication. Uh, started uh, back in 1977, uh, when the first oil started flowing through through taps and so the um, uh, the focus of the publication has always been to to have that uh, an in-depth perspective an in-depth look at, uh, at at the business community in Alaska from oil and gas mining fisheries tourism transportation uh, the military and then of course the role of, of government in the state because we certainly realize how much money um, within the economy is supported by either federal or state, Spending, uh, so it's, it's an interesting uh, aspect of the economy to cover because there's, I think, there's probably very few states in the country where government spending represents such a large part of the overall economy. So the the goal of the journal, uh, being a weekly publication versus a daily, uh, we always have a little bit more time to spend on on stories to get a little bit more in depth. I think sometimes when you're when you're on a daily deadline, uh, a lot of stories make it more just sort of a cursory coverage uh, without going into more in-depth and more uh, more of the deeper questions about what are the driving forces behind what's happening versus just covering what's happening. So uh, so the journal's been around now. This is uh, the 44th year of publication. I I joined the journal in 2010 uh, as a reporter, and I became the managing editor in May of 2012. So I've been a managing editor for, I guess it's just about coming up on on my eight-year anniversary on that right now.
0: In episode three, I was talking with Craig Medred, and we, we talked about fish, but we also talked a little bit about journalism, what he saw. He's worked at numerous publications, and um, if you go back in time, 20 years, this is kind of what you were alluding to, TV would break the story, or maybe it was radio that would break the story. And what people relied on uh, print to do is uh, is to really analyze and, and give an in-depth Discussion about what the story means because you couldn't keep up with what was breaking on radio or TV. So, is the Alaska Journal of Commerce still in print? Is it all just online? Uh, where are you guys at with that?
1: Uh, yeah, it's still it's still printed. Um, it's it's printed, in, and of course we do have the online uh, present. Uh, so the uh, we do several folks. You know, each issue tries to have somewhat of a, of a focus, and I think ten to twelve times per year we do with an oil and gas reporter. Where, where the large chunk of the, of the content is, is focused on oil and gas, then we have regular mining editions, regular transportation editions, regular fisheries editions, uh, where we'll zero in on, on a particular sector of the economy, and then those issues go up to a little bit more uh, wide disbursement uh, through the state. Uh, one thing that um, supports the printed product for the journal anyway, is legal advertising, which is, uh, for now anyway, still. Uh, a requirement for things like foreclosure notices, name changes, estate sales, that sort of thing, and so the Journal of Commerce is classified by the uh, by the state as a paper of record, and um, so in, in order to fulfill multiple different legal requirements depending on the situation, uh, there requires three weeks of publication, four weeks of publication, that sort of thing, uh, and so so legal ad revenue is is a big source of of, of what the journal relies on. Uh, right now, because certainly you know print is, is not what it what it used to be. and um, we' we always have to be sort of prepared for that day sometime down the line where 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 local governments or state governments may decide, hey, you can do all this stuff online and you don't no longer need to, to publish it in print. So uh, we're always kind of watching for that day on the horizon when uh, uh, when when certain sources of print revenue may may dry up or disappear.
0: and the Alaska journal has has some pretty fantastic reporting at least when I go to and I access it online frequently i like how it's divided into all the different sections this timber this is oil this is mining you have the marijuana business etc um but so it's a great source and i don't think that you have a very large staff though so what's it mean to be a managing editor of a a, of a publication like that are you guys pretty nimble are you guys focused on moving more more and more online more and more opinion more and more business where are you guys headed
1: well, it, it is a it is a smaller staff. When I when I became managing editor, I had a staff of three reporters. Um, it's down to one full time reporter. Where we we went through ownership transitions, where uh, we used to be owned by Morris, which uh, unloaded most of its Alaska newspapers back in two thousand seventeen, uh, where they sold the Clarion, the Prince of Clarion, the Homer News, the Juno Empire, uh, and a sort of weekly. It it sold those newspapers to to Gatehouse, who then Gatehouse subsequently unloaded them onto, I think, the Puget Sound Sound Publications. I think that may be the company that still owns them. Uh, But Morris held on to the Journal and the uh, Chugiak Eagle River newspaper uh, because that was the Anchorage-based publications. And at that point, it looked like the ADN may or may not, may cease to exist within a couple months. So Morris... um, Held on to the journal just in case uh, the ADN just went belly up and, and couldn't keep operating to have some sort of printed product that may uh, that may be able to step in and, and take over a role um, covering the covering the state. Cause We already had a statewide reputation, a statewide footprint. Um, so, but then the leagues, they came in, they rescued the ADN, and then. But now Morris had sold all of the newspapers in Alaska, so we were just left with the Milepost. They still owned Alaska Magazine. They still owned, and then they owned these two little newspapers. And they had sold off all their newspapers to the rest of the company, so they no longer really had any support at all uh, for the two newspapers they had left in Alaska. And things got pretty bleak there for for the next couple months after it became clear that uh, the ADN wasn't going anywhere, but Morris had already sold all of the newspapers in its portfolio. And we really became even more of a redheaded uh, sort of stepchild within the company uh, to the point where uh, there were some internal things that were, were sort of deteriorating, and Morris went to the Binkley's and asked if they'd be interested in buying the publication. And that happened and then that moved pretty quickly, I think, from January to February. They had, they had worked out a deal, and we moved into the ADN building in Midtown Anchorage, I think around March of uh, 2018. And I mean, the difference has been, I mean, it's been tremendous to have local ownership versus ownership that's four hours away and it's not really concerned anymore with, with what you're doing. So you didn't have tech support, you didn't have billing support and that sort of thing. So just have local ownership and local, local people that are there to help you. You know, you can just walk over to a desk or now you have to, you know, more emailing uh, to, to get that support. So local ownership and, and and the Binkley's management, I think has been great both for the, both for the ADN and for the journal of commerce.
0: And you, you moved up to Alaska, you know, decade plus ago, I also moved to Alaska a decade plus ago. Um, one of the things, if you if you were born and raised here, and this is what you know, uh, you may not see any, any difference, but you were talking about the local ownership. If I go and I look at the Casper Star Tribune from Wyoming, or if I look at uh, the Cheyenne paper, Rapid City Journal, Sioux Falls, Argus, any of these, because I grew up in South Dakota,
1: um oh, no i'm from south dakota oh, well, how about that well that's good. i grew up in pier yeah i grew up in pier
0: well you know you're right smack dab in the middle i grew up in Belfouche, south dakota so all the way to the west and uh well and west river yeah <laughs> it, you know it's a it's a real thing people don't understand that but east west river is a real thing and my parents actually live in in here on now um so oh yeah there. no that
1: that was a big divide
0: <laughs> yeah and and I've, I've got family in in uh pier um So, or they were in Pierre, now they're in Yankton. But anyway, when you look at these, when you look at these different uh, newspapers, they're, they're supposed to be local newspapers. But if you, if you click and you go look at them, it's basically a regurgitation of the AP national news. There's, there's really no local news. Alaska has maintained more local news and we had a really great local radio presence that has, uh. Basically gone away as everybody's taking a job with the current administration. But um, <laughs> you
1: know, it's, it's not a, I, I mean, launches. yeah, that, that is, and yeah, for sure. And and, and another thing that where well, I've heard where radios, radio is getting hit hard right now, is, is because of drive time. People aren't driving, yeah. you know. So so your drive time hours, where where they try to at least sort of focus, where you're going to have some local content and, and that sort of thing. That now you know, ratings and whatnot, people aren't in their cars as much as they used to be, or or at all. Uh, in certain the certain times of day, where, you, where you're where you're counting on listeners, uh, so and that's been sort of an interesting um, dynamic of this as well. It's just people not being in cars, and so therefore local radio is suffering.
0: And well, there's so there's an app. There's a serious appetite for local news. I think that there's a serious appetite everywhere for local news, but it's hard to get it because you got two problems. And the Alaska Journal does a good job of of attempting to fill this. One of them is. Uh, you know, and I, I don't mean to be offensive to them, but a lot of journalists that are writing for ADN have no idea what they're writing about. Uh, they, they have no idea about the business community. They haven't talked to the business leaders. They're anecdotally thinking about what it's going to do based on their, you know, sociology 101 class. And so so there's not a very good uh, analysis of, of what's going on. And so you look to other sources and there's independents that are, that are going out. Craig Medred does a great job. And then you have a wide readership at Landmine. You have wide readership at Must Read. And I think there's probably a few others. But but there is an appetite for local news, Alaska Journal, is kind of doing that. Do you compete with any of those? Or, or are you in a different space than, than they are?
1: I think we're, we're fortunate to really kind of occupy the space almost on our own. Uh, Alaska Business is a, is a monthly magazine uh and i think that they they can do a certainly a good job time to time on certain on features, profiles, that sort of thing but being a magazine with long lead times you're not really going to be able to be super current on on what's going on and and petroleum news does a great job but they're also again they're very singularly focused obviously on one industry so we're really the only ones who try to take that in-depth look at all these segments of the business so where we can really be the ones um where where people trust us to have the, the depth of knowledge and the ability to to write it well and explain it well because we will have people who are maybe experts on oil and gas that don't know anything about fisheries. People who are experts on fisheries that don't know anything about, say, mining or or, or transportation or that sort of thing. So I think we're to so our readers um are certainly an, an educated readership, a decision maker type leadership, stakeholder type leadership um, and to where we can be a reference point for them to learn about other industries in the state as well. Whereas also being trusted to be able to cover their industry accurately. Cause that's the one thing it takes a lot of work to understand commercial fisheries. I mean, that was, I knew nothing about commercial fisheries when I moved up here and that was my main beat that I was assigned. And what I did was I spent, you know, I would spend the entire meeting, the North Pacific fish council, sitting in the entire meeting, listening, I mean, you're learning biology, you're learning economics, you're learning uh, international law versus federal law versus state law, who's got jurisdiction over this, that, or or whatever, how are the decisions made? You're learning about the Administrative Procedures Act, the National Environmental Policies Act. You're learning about all, you know, the uh, the, the international treaties that govern some of these fisheries. So it was just sort of, I, I really enjoyed that. It was basically like being in college. You're just sitting there in these meetings and being able to learn so much, and that's what it takes. I mean, you really have to sit in these meetings for hours and days um, over a period of, of years to really start to learn the ins and outs of fisheries management, and that's just something that a daily newspaper is not is not going to be able to do. And I'm glad that we had a, a, the type of publication where my editor could send me and say, "Okay, you got the fish council meeting this week," and that was all I had to really worry about was sitting in the meeting all, all week and learning. And, that, and that's really, I think, helped our coverage um, and helped us be cut, you know, remain a trusted publication because they had, you know, the journal has had that reputation for a long time and I've been able to um, just pick up on that and, and build on it and, and certainly maintain it. And that's something that definitely, I think as a, as a news organization, we should be, uh, we're, we're proud of.
0: Yeah. And, and, and fisheries take a, a long time to understand, but all businesses take a, an extremely long time to understand that's, that's where you guys have the expertise now we're we're about seventeen minutes in. We haven't even started talking about homelessness, but it's been great so far. But you, so you wrote, and and I think that um, that homelessness itself is not something where it's just oh, this is this social problem, and this is homelessness has a, a serious impact on on business and the economy and, and property values, etc. So you wrote a a piece, and in, uh, in the introduction, I said it was titled "What I Learned Cleaning Up a Homeless Camp." So, could you talk just briefly where the homeless camp was uh, that you cleaned up, and and people can find this at Alaska Journal of Commerce, and and I'll link but a link to the article, etc. But what, where were you at when you went to clean this up? Why were you cleaning it up?
1: and um uh, what well I live, I live in a sure i live in an apartment building here uh in anchorage that um, i mean i'm looking at it right now my balcony sits probably about 50 yards from chester creek uh so this particular the trash pile all the, the photos and everything that i cleaned up all of this is directly uh line of sight 50 yards or so uh behind or uh away from the north-facing part of my building. And so the area that I worked on was essentially, you know, taking the the borders of the parking lot uh, of the building and then just extending it to the creek. And I decided, you know, I'm going to clean up this area just behind my building uh, because that's the area where, you know, I like to walk my dog the most. And, you know, looking at the the piles of trash, and, you know, I'd certainly seen the camps there all winter long. And uh, uh, so uh, I didn't feel like it was going to get cleaned up anytime soon, uh, based on where it's located and everything. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to go out there and start, start working on it. I didn't, I didn't do it like, Hey, this will be a great sort of story. If I go do this, I think that would be, (laughs) I wouldn't have done it. If that was sort of the idea, I just was like, I need to go do this. And then once I got done with it and I was sort of sitting, I took a lawn chair down there and posted it on the side of the Creek and sat down there after I was done, just to sort of enjoy the clean space. and, And that's when I sort of started thinking about, you know, I need to, kind of write this up and write about what, what what the experience was like.
0: So you're you did it on this isn't part of like uh like as a community cleanup group type of thing. This is no this is just something said, where to do it.
1: yeah because based on where it's located um because the trail uh is across the creek. So my feeling was was that even when parks and rec does get around to cleaning, doing their annual camp abatement or cleanup, the first area that's going to get focused on is going to be the area that's actually adjoining the trail. So I felt like I was going to be sort of even last in line maybe when they, they did get around to this particular portion of the Creek area. So I didn't feel like waiting a month or two months or however long it might take, uh, to, to take care of it. So I just went and bought a box of of trash bags and some, some Kevlar lined gloves. And just went down one day. And that's one of those things that we ask about, about quarantine and isolation. I <laughs> have a lot of time to sort of stare at it. And I was like, well, you know, I've got time to go down and, and, and work on this. And so I just kind of took it piecemeal, a couple hours a day, over four days, and, and uh, used up all my 20 trash bags.
0: Now, so when when I'm looking at the, the pictures, right? So you can go onto, the, onto your article. You have some pictures. Sometimes the lens will make, make something look... Larger than what it really is. Are, are you talking about an area that's like the size of somebody's living room? Is this like a, a sprawling? Uh, I
1: sprawling guess that. It, 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 I guess like the, the main picture, the main picture on the article uh, at the top. Uh, that area. I guess I'm looking at it right now, trying to eyeball it. Um, I mean, because the, the the parking lot itself, I would say is probably about I don't know, sixty to seventy yards or something like that long, and then it's probably like I said, it's about maybe thirty yards to the creek. So that's sort of the square area that I was working in. Uh, that area between the trees, I guess I would have to say it's probably at least sort of 50 by 30 feet or something like that, where that main concentration of trash was.
0: And so you could see the area from your balcony during the wintertime. Did you ever, did you, could you ever see the homeless camp or? Like, was it occupied oh, when you went down there? Or? Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, it was definitely occupied uh, over the winter. And we definitely had, you know, you could always see the people leave the camp and then and, and walk up the hill and then through the parking lot into whatever. We even, you know, we had a couple of guys that uh, that kept breaking into our apartment building. And then they would go hang out in the stairwells or in the laundry room, charging their phones or, you know, whatever. Um, so sort of, you know, that the building had to go around and actually install new door guards around all the locks because they were, they were physically just like picking the, picking the locks open to get into the building. So, uh, people were coming out of there that were getting into cars. They were breaking into the building. Uh, that was certainly going on, uh, all winter. I mean, I'm not sure why this particular camp eventually got abandoned. I think what it almost, what I started to feel like was that it became the dumping area for the camp just Uh, Just downstream from me, just in behind the building next door, that that's where they were taking their trash, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, and and dumping it all in that particular area. So it it was really, yeah, it was it was really quite a mess by the time I was starting to work on it.
0: When I when I lived in town, um, I used to drive down to the BP building where I was working, and when I when I lived in the area, I didn't use Anchorage parks. Um, I didn't see that very frequently you could see homelessness but I didn't see it as in my face as what some people have described when I do fly back into town now I feel like I see a slight uptick in in homelessness but I don't spend a whole bunch of time looking at it so in your experience have you has this been increasing about the same declining where are we at for?
1: I think numbers. I think there's definitely, there's definitely been an increase uh, over the 10 years that I've lived here. Cause when I first moved to Anchorage, I lived on the other side of Chester Creek, more sort of across the street from Sullivan Arena. So I've been using the Chester Creek trail system for you know, for the 10 years that I've lived up here. There was, I lived a little bit farther down the highway for about five. So I took about half of my time in Anchorage. I've lived directly alongside chester creek and it is definitely worse it's definitely gotten worse i did part of the city cleanup uh in 2010 because again that's where i walked my dog so i felt like hey you know this is where i walk my dog i'll I'll participate in helping you clean up and you know and i just grabbed a few of the, the pink bags from the chamber and walked along the trail and i think i filled up maybe three or four bags around over a mile versus what i just cleaned up in one spot where i filled 20 bags in just one area behind one building Uh, And and walking along the trail, you've seen, you know, and especially as, you know, the city has really become sort of more tolerant about it, uh, that it's just become much more open. And then, which has certainly led to, because we do have, and certainly we have so many that are people who are addicted, who are living in these camps that are very close to houses, parking lots, cars, businesses, et cetera, and they have to support their habit. And so there's definitely been an increase in in property crime break-ins and you can't leave anything anything laying around i mean i had to get a locking gas cap for my truck because um gas was getting siphoned out of my vehicle and so uh so we've all had to take a lot of extra precautions uh around here because you know that that's, that's what happens addicts are, are feeding their their, their needs and they're doing it through through stealing
0: and you f- you found some some things that were pretty disturbing uh, some of it being toys diapers etc I don't know if the toys are, are necessarily tell you that there's a child that's in the camp, but diapers would certainly indicate that, that there's children yeah. in these camps.
1: Yeah, I mean, and that was the thing. It was the combination of all of it. It was because the first, you know, I, I would see little, the first things I noticed was like little stuffed animals. I didn't think too much about that, but then I got to one particular pile where I guess that's where they were just were, were putting the dirty diapers. And I and there was several that I picked up at that point. And then as you're picking up the clothes and everything that have been discarded, uh, you're finding children's clothes, tiny shoes. Uh, so you're finding plenty of mounting amounts of evidence that, that children were present, not, not just the toys, but just the combination of all the
0: things. It's unbelievably, it's unbelievably sad to me. I've got three children. Uh, My oldest is five. My youngest is one to think about them being in a situation like that. I think it, any normal person is going to have to react with some form of empathy towards this. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a terrible social problem and we want, we definitely want to fix it. Um, We, over the, the COVID crisis, Anchorage turned Benboki Sullivan arena. I mean, into mass shelters at this point, you would think that there would be nobody on the streets essentially because there's plenty, there's plenty of bed space now. Um, and I was right. reading ADN this morning, and they have a, a story where there's still people have to go out and clean up homeless camps. The mayor is going out. Some people have said that they feel like they're in a prison. That's a, that's a quote from, from ADN this morning. I don't have the article in front of me, but I do remember it. Yeah, I read the
1: one too.
0: Yeah, hey, this is – no, I'm not going to go down there because it's kind of like being in a prison. So if if you're, if you're being honest, you can't possibly say that this is just an equation where people don't have, we don't have enough bed space. So if we invest a hundred million dollars and create 10,000 beds, there will be nobody on the streets. That equation doesn't work. You can't, you can't go. No, the the evidence
1: doesn't, yeah, the evidence doesn't support that, uh, that that people will on their own. If something is available to them, that they will take advantage of it. Uh, People are in the depths of addiction um, people, some people just don't, they don't, they have no interest in, in being in a structured environment. And that's where I think when, if you're, when you're not being proactive about patrolling the camps, finding out what's going on, uh, you, you'll never be able to separate the people who, who need help or who would take help from the, the people who, who won't take help and don't want help. And the people who don't want help, I think some of those people need to be connected with services against their will. You know, that's how you get away from the, uh, this whole, well, they just move from one place to another. Well, you know, if they're breaking the law, then you need to get them off the streets. You need to get them out of the camps and, and you need to do things to where you can put them in a facility where they're going to be forced to sober up, where they're going to be forced to get, treatment, whether they need mental illness treatment, whether they need uh, addiction treatment, whether they need to, to learn some kind of a trade or, or whatever. Um, and that's the thing that you don't see ever proposed. It's always, well, we need to connect in the service. We need outreach. Well, there's, there's a, a, a group of probably two to 300 people who, who don't want any of that and are not going to take it unless, unless you force them. And some of these people, I think, need to be forced to take the help against their will. And until the city's willing to do that, the problem is not going to, it's not going to change.
0: Well, one of the problems though, is even, even if you start to offer the help a lot of times, well, I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say this, one of the things, and, and I talked a little bit with Matt Schultz about this in episode one, um, the, the idea that there are a bunch of people that through no fault of their own, have ended up on the streets with their family because of an emergency, and now they can't get out of that cycle, that is a one-off. That you, you can't consider that the norm because it's not. And if you think that it is, you're lying to yourself. What is causing homelessness is addiction. Plain and simple, it is very difficult to become homeless in this country if you're not addicted to substances, and that is something that that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow. That that doesn't mean that there aren't some people that fall on hard times, but guess what? Those people are usually willing to go and seek out the help. But what you have is right. is people that are in serious addiction, and I don't think I, I I'm not sure when you look at addiction rates and addiction numbers and, and recidivism in addiction. No matter how much help that you give, the, the problem is is that there's an underlying issue that's leading to the addiction, whether it be self-worth, whether it be abuses through childhood, etc. And so the prospects of getting people out of addiction are low. Your chances of success are low. And so um, really, you have a, a population of people that are potentially homeless. Let's say it's 2,000 people, potentially homeless. They're right there. They're on the verge. If the city is going to allow it, uh, make it easier to be homeless, then what it does is it attracts more people from that potentially homeless population to become homeless. And so, um, I think that there's obvious reasons that in some cities where they're making it easier and easier to become homeless, that the homeless numbers are increasing, and nobody really wants to address. or Nobody really wants to admit that maybe some, maybe it's uh, maybe deterrence is a better. It is even better socially to help people out that are on the streets That is not necessarily about giving assistance but maybe sometimes just being the person who says look you can do better you need to do better and we're not going to allow this and that that will grab a few people that are on the margin that are just close to becoming homeless or not homeless and they'll decide not to i don't know whether that's oh, just you know
1: well, I think the deterrence, deterrence is not something that Anchorage is practicing right now. Uh, I mean, there's no excuse for, for example, say at the, at the Midtown Walmart here at 32nd and A Street, one of the busiest intersections in town. There's no reason that law enforcement should allow groups of 10, 15 people to gather on the corners, drink, literally pass out on the sidewalk there's no reason that law enforcement should be allowing that to go on every single day. You have got to do deterrence, And until you're willing to use the force of the law, you will not stop this. And until you make it uncomfortable for people to do what they're doing, they are going to keep doing it. And uh, so, so to me there's a lot of sort of low hanging fruit for the city. That that could be done, you know. For example, I mean, because if you would do year-round abatement, if you would do year-round patrols through these areas along Chester Creek and Campbell Creek where things are particularly bad, for example, for example, I mean, the the police could walk into a camp and and it could be tr- trash like the the area I was in or whatever, and the cops could very easily say, "Look, here's some trash bags. We're gonna come back out here in a couple days, and if you don't have this cleaned up, we're gonna post an abatement notice and, you're, and we're gonna take this camp down." You know, you could at least begin to do some little things like, hey, here's some trash bags, clean up your area. Not even necessarily have to roust them out and kick them out, but hey, clean it up. And that I think you could probably get some people to do that in their camp area. Well, I don't want the cops to come back and and tear my tent down and and kick me out of here. So I'm going to at least clean up around the area. But there's not even something as minimal as that going on because that would go a long way towards keeping things cleaner at least during the winter to the point where you wouldn't get to where we are in the spring where, where the snow melts and everybody can see just these this tremendous amount of trash that is that is all over that is you know that is right along sand bearing uh, waters
0: and, and you know to be fair when the snow melts my front yard doesn't look that great i gotta i gotta work on it and get it fixed up there's some things that get hidden in the snow but to your broader point and and i think it's it's just as you, you touch on this in the article as well, that, okay, you, maybe you think that we need more services or maybe you think that we need less services or maybe whatever your opinion is. What we do know is yes, you're close down to salmon stream. We want to protect the environment. This is not very environmentally friendly. We wouldn't allow this to go on with any industry in the state. I mean, none. And for some reason, we're saying, oh, well, let's let's allow this to go on out of you know our own compassion or whatever." But removing the people from it, we can't just have people throwing trash around like this. I mean, normal people are going to get giant fines for doing this.
1: Exactly. I don't. Well, I think that the municipality, because this is municipal land, so they're responsible for the environmental quality of the municipal land. And, you know, like I said, I I noted several very strong statutes that govern these areas between the Anodromous Fish Act, with Chester Creek and Campbell Creek are both included in in the state fish catalog, which means they are protected habitat. uh, The Clean Water Act, federal level, and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Because we have, we obviously have migratory birds. (laughs) We have migratory fish. We have moose. We have, I mean, we have owls. We have rabbits. I've even seen a picture of a lynx running around on, on Chester Creek. I haven't seen one, but I've seen a picture of it. Uh, so we have you know, wildlife habitat here that is, that is being destroyed, and that's a municipal responsibility. And I think that if, there was, you know, if, they, if they can't be motivated by humanitarian reasons, then maybe somebody needs to come in, like the State Devi- Department of Environmental Conservation or the federal EPA, because you can easily just do a visual examination and realize that there is pollution entering the soil and entering the water. Uh, you wouldn't even have to do a soil sample. But I think if you did soil samples in some of these camps, you would—you would you would be they'd be shocked at what they're going to find leaching into the soil and what they're going to find that's going to run off from stormwater. Okay. So if, 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 if nothing else, uh, maybe some environmental laws could, could be something that forces the municipality to deal with this more seriously because I believe there's some certain jurisdictions in California that have big problems with homelessness that have had to address homeless trash in their uh, federal EPA uh, water protection plan.
0: And it, so when you when when I look at, at these uh, pictures, one of the one of the things that you have is, is you have a, a like an oatmeal can full of of needles. So you clearly have the illicit drug use going on. You clearly have all of this pollution that's going on. You've got a shopping cart pushed into a creek, etc. So the combination of both illicit drug use and the uh, environmental impacts of, of these types of things should be something that we consider, okay, well, let's, let's clean these camps up. Now, I think some people may look at the broader economy and say, well, Alaska or not Alaska, Anchorage in particular is at a disadvantage because uh, number one, you get a lot of population coming in from uh, from villages that come in and they stay in Anchorage. Now, some people may think, well, that's because there's all of this welfare in the villages, blah 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 blah. That's not true, uh, as far as as far as I can tell. As far as I know from my my traveling to villages and, and living off of the road system. There's the the problem is is that a, a village operates completely different than being in the city. You don't have to compete for labor. If you get a job as a as and there there are plenty of jobs, but if you get a get a job doing anything, you're an administrator for the city, you're a tribal administrator, there's not a whole bunch of people that want your job. And so if you're supposed to show up at work at eight and you have something that goes on there's, there's also no help. So somebody can't just call an electrician in a village and say, oh, well, this is going on. And if you happen to know something about that, maybe you're the person to call. And so you go over and you help somebody and you don't show up to work at eight because you've got all these other hats that you're wearing. You go into Anchorage and all of the sudden you need to be to work exactly at the right time. You can't step off of doing anything. You can't bring your children to work. You can't do all of these things. And so it can lead, if, if somebody goes in without without a giant social, uh, basically a support system, that it can lead to some homelessness and it's hard to get out of that. That's one, that's one problem that Anchorage has. Another problem that Anchorage has is that as the economy dwindles, and this is a direct reflection of production and oil price right now, more people locate to Anchorage, I think, maybe for... Social services, or to make things easier on them, because transaction costs are lower in Anchorage, and so they relocate to Anchorage, but they don't have a really good plan. And so, with ever with a broader Alaska economy in question, more people kind of are a magnet into Anchorage.
1: That's yeah, I think there's definitely some the, the economic factors in Anchorage, uh, and and the cost of housing in particular. Is, is very difficult uh, to, to, to get into in terms of just the rent, the deposit requirements, and, and that sort of thing. There's not a lot of affordable housing in Anchorage, and it's very difficult to build multifamily housing here just for various regulatory reasons. Uh, you know, there's various things in code that involve, where, where you know, a lot of municipalities around the country have figured this out, that if you want to encourage development, and especially encourage development of a certain kind, the municipality has to take on some of the cost in terms of utilities, in terms of uh, street access and, and those sort of things, infrastructure within the neighborhood. In in Anchorage, all of that falls on the developer. The developer's responsible for all the utility lines. They're responsible for all of the, the street and sidewalks and, and everything else. So So the cost of developing in Anchorage is so high that it discourages a lot of the solutions that you might want to have in terms of affordable housing. Uh, and, and that's a big problem with Anchorage. I know there's definitely a lot of people who become homeless because it's, 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 it's very unaffordable for some people, especially on one income uh, in order to make ends meet in terms of, of that. So I think that's a big problem really. with Anchorage and I don't see a lot of solutions to see where the municipality is going to come out and, and partner with developers to create a certain kind of housing um, cause then you also run into people who say, well, I don't want that kind of housing in my neighborhood.
0: No, that's the, that's the one that I wanted to touch on right there is because let's say we want to convert a park to a housing development and this is going to drive down or at least increase supply of housing. And so maybe we can get some people into some housing for a cheaper cost. The people that are seeking to buy that don't have a vote because they haven't moved there yet. And so the local, maybe maybe they're located in Mountain View and they want to move to a new development planned in Jewel Lake, but um, you don't get a seat at the at the community council. Um, that may be where you want to go, but it's the members of Jewel Lake that are saying, no, we don't want this development here. No, we don't want this development here. And Anchorage has a substantial amount of parks. There's a substantial amount of land that's locked up, municipal land. It's a, it's a park. And so... To say that uh, that there isn't some sort of an equation where we say, "Well, we'd rather have the homeless than get rid of our parks." That that's another thing to, to keep in mind. I mean, yeah, and there's also
1: a lot of properties. Are, yeah, there's there's also a lot of properties around town that are just sort of empty, that are vacant. Uh, there's, there's I think there's a lot of property space around town. Um, where you could do this kind of project, where a mixed use kind of thing where it where it would be in an area that that is still walkable because obviously most of these people, uh or none of them have have their own transportation. So you would have to want locate something where, where you can still get around fairly easily. Um and, and you know if you drive down northern lights at Fireweed or you know some of these places around midtown, you know, you see plenty of sort of space where there are empty or vacant commercial structures or lots. That would certainly seem could be ripe for some kind of development, and so and that's the thing that's frustrating. The city and the mayor and the administration they like to put this off onto the federal government. Well, you know our federal safety net is bad, or we're not getting enough federal help for this or that. Well, at some point you can't you, you can't just stand around with your hand out to the federal government, and when you don't get what you want, then just blame them for why you're not doing anything. Uh, Anchorage has to take some ownership over this stuff. And so, and that's the thing that frustrates me, is when they propose this alcohol tax, if they had said, look, we're going to build a treatment center, well, we're going to build a facility where people who are committing, I guess, for lack of a better, just like a nuisance, like nuisance misdemeanors, public drinking, passing out on the street, littering, illegal camping, illegal burning, you know, that sort of thing. There's a lot of nuisance misdemeanors that are going on, where I think you'd be perfectly justified in in enforcing those laws, as long as you have a facility where you're gonna take them, and they are gonna, I mean, it is going to be, in technical terms, a jail, but at the same time could be almost like a, a rehabilitation type camp facility, where you, know, you certainly have some prisoners in the system who you know, are not necessarily there because they're addicts, although I think the statistics are overwhelming that people who are in there have some sort of mental problem or uh, an addiction problem that, that led to the crime. Uh, but until you start to get real about, we've got to get these people off the street for their own good, It's, it's nothing is really going to change. And, and I, I think there's just this real reluctance to, for anybody to say, look, we're going to, you know, we're, we're not going to allow people to just openly break laws and get away with it. Um, it's not fair to them, and it's not fair to the law-abiding citizens.
0: Well, so – this is another thing that I, I talked in episode one about. I don't that you know, that was my very first episode that I did. I don't think I, I, um, I don't think that I verbalized it as well as I could have. So l- let me try again here with the homelessness. One of the, one of the questions that I posed was, is empathy really a, a great idea? You know, if you have, if you have a child that, is having a problem, you can have empathy with that child, but you, as the parent, you know, because you you know better than that child, you can say, look, this is how you deal with this. When we are dealing with the homeless population, frequently, our own compassion, and this, happened, this happens with parents all of the time, and I'm not saying that we're the parents to the homeless, I'm just using it as a metaphor, analogy, however you want to call it, but you, you have uh, uh, parents that sometimes love their children literally to death. You know, they're keeping them coddled and they're keeping them away from developing into a more productive adult and trying to keep them in, in their adolescence or their childhood. We've all had, at some point, you've either had a coworker, you've had a friend, you've had a coach, you've had a teacher, you've had a professor... Somewhere along the line, you've you've been around somebody that's better than you are and that pushes you to do better than what you thought that you could do. And I think that in many ways, a lot of the problem, the more and more that we abate, the more and more that you stop, the more and more that you make it hard, those, those uh, interventions can make a giant difference by saying, look, this isn't an acceptable way to do things. And now we are having problems with our state budget, and the city of Anchorage has had money, and lots of communities have had money, and we've had we've been spending more money than than most places, and we've got sixty something billion dollars at the state level to uh, to help us out right now, but um, our budget is becoming. A serious problem and the problem is is that i think that we are not uh, addressing that problem well enough looking into the future and going okay now we've never had to prioritize before now we need to because i'm sure i know that the state spends a lot of money that it doesn't need to spend i know that the cities spend a lot of money that it doesn't need to spend boroughs spend a lot of money that they don't need to spend and it just doesn't seem to me that anybody really wants to address any of the the budget problems that could be driving uh, more issues by spending money on things that I'm sure that somebody needs it, but you could consider it a little bit frivolous almost some of the things that we're spending money on that we're not directing towards, taking care of the things that directly impact business, directly impact residents.
1: yeah, I, and that's the great challenge. For, you know, certainly at a state level. And that's where, where I get frustrated with Anchorage because Anchorage, of any place in the state, has the ability to take care of itself without having to hold its hand out to the state. Now, and I recognize the argument that you'll often hear from the municipality is that, well, you know, we've got all these people, they're sending their people into Anchorage. And then, so it's a statewide problem that becomes an Anchorage problem. And so I do understand where they're coming from on that. But I also know that if the city of Anchorage was to build a treatment center, staff it up, that Medicaid dollars are going to cover the cost of operating that. Because obviously these people are not, they qualify. They qualify for Medicaid. And so now, would that increase some state spend at some level? True. But you would also generate, a you know, it's a 50-50 match. So any dollar the state spends would generate another dollar from the federal government. So the, the city investment could be relatively minimal in terms of just simply building the structure, but operationally, I think you could rely on Medicaid funds for a large amount of what you're what you're trying to do in terms of addiction treatment, mental health treatment, uh, and, and and those things that need to be done. So the the city to me is not being very proactive, and then you know like with this alcohol tax. You know, one, one reason I didn't like the alcohol tax is because I don't think it's fair to just tax one thing for a citywide problem. You could put in a one-penny sales tax. Instead of a 5% tax on alcohol, you could put in a one-penny sales tax on everybody. Uh, that would exempt the usual things, you know, unprepared food, clothing, that sort of thing, or at least a certain type of clothing. Uh, but that would raise $25 million a year. A one-penny tax. Would raise 25 million versus a 5% alcohol tax that might raise 11 to 15 million. So, what could you do with that 25 million a year? Well, you could definitely build something. You could definitely build some treatment centers or expand them. You could build an additional facility, like a minimum security type thing where you could, you know, take these addicts off the street where you can sober them up. Because that's the thing, you, you know, this, well, if you just, you know, arrest them for something petty, they'll be right out the next day. Like, well, I would think you you need to do something like it's like a three three misdemeanors and you're in for a year, for example. I, I, I at some level, other, otherwise you, you will never deal with it. Um, I mean, I don't remember you know back in South Dakota. I'm not sure when when you lived there or how old you are, but um, you remember Governor Janklow? Yes. So so Bill Janklow and there was and and, and because South Dakota has a lot of the same. Um, issues with, with the Native American population in terms of addiction, alcoholism that we have here in Alaska. And the cost, and they had this huge problem with fetal with alcohol syndrome babies. And all these premature babies that were literally costing the state something like $1 to $2 million per kid because they were being born being born prematurely, they were born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, it, was, it was costing from $1 to $2 million a, per kid between the ICU or the, the, um, uh, the premature uh, you know, units uh, at the hospitals. And so what they started doing was if they encountered a pregnant woman who was under the influence of alcohol or, or some other drug and she was pregnant, they would go to jail until they had the kid. And the, and the amount of the fetal alcohol cases went way down because they would literally lock up these women and keep them sober until they had a kid. Because that was the cost benefit. It was, better, it was better from a cost perspective to put them in jail than it was to let them keep doing what they were doing and then have to deal with a, a premature fetal alcohol syndrome baby.
0: Well, and so
1: sometimes you, you have to take drastic action to save people from themselves. And that's the thing that we're not seeing even talked about as a solution So I think people are very uncomfortable with, with that. Uh, but at some level, you have to look around and say, that's what it's going to take. That is what it's going to take to, to do this. And so you can stop saying, well, they just moved from one place to another. Well, you can't just arrest them for this petty stuff. So you just let it happen. It just doesn't work. Look at what's happening in New York City right now. What's going on on the subways with the homeless there? Because they've allowed things to get out of control. And now they're all of a sudden like, oh, my gosh, look at all these homeless people on the subway. It's like, well, What are, what have you been doing? Cali- you know, California all has an
0: enormous problem with this as well.
1: Exactly. It's almost where you have camps literally up against the building of city hall in Los Angeles, where you have medieval diseases like typhus I,
0: I that was that are making their way
1: into city hall.
0: I was in San Diego a couple of months ago. I took a, it, My family went on vacation uh, down there. Thankfully COVID free, you know, before all of the, the <laughs> chaos went on. Uh, but we went down to San Diego and we said, Oh, well let's take the kids to the park. It's a nice day. Let's take the kids to the park. we looked it up, Google maps drive around the corner get to the park there was i mean not even remotely exaggerating there was probably 40 or 50 tents and tarps and and so the park was gated and basically everybody's tent tarp etc lined the entire outside of the park and we said well <laughs> I don't think so, but these are, you know, these are community parks that have been taken over and nobody's going to do anything about it, um, at all. And so you, you know, you mentioned, uh, South Dakota, native American population, some of the problems, uh, if I go back to where I was talking about in the beginning of this podcast, and I said, sometimes people don't, people look at the very, uh, surface level. So some, some, Somebody may say, "Well, that is a little bit offensive to say that," or some people may say, "Well, that particular population is predisposed to uh, to addiction." But I, I right, I, I just I, I simply disagree with that with that analysis. I think a, a large portion of it is that we have done a lot. To allow a lot, we spend a lot of money to provide all of these different services, and like in Alaska, we, the uh, Native population was allowed to, to stake out 160 acres. Not everybody, but there was land allotments. But the land is not theirs; it's still owned by the the government and they have to get permission to sell or develop or to transfer this land because for some reason the native population was not allowed to be trusted with their own property rights. And so now you have all of this equity that's built up in all of these different allotments that could be sold and developed and that money could go in to allow these families to go. And the same thing happens with these these homes, these BIA homes, all of this property that's held in trust by the BIA It's not allowed to be owned by the individuals, and so it takes – I mean, the engine of wealth for the vast majority of us in the middle class, lower middle class, upper middle class, whatever, is that we build up a home, and then we take that equity and we pass it on to our children, and our children do better and better and better, and we've taken that engine completely away from the native population. It's not their fault for that, and so I think it's it's almost like a generational theft that we're not allowing – this community to develop any of its own wealth. And there's a whole host of wealth out there in the native community that should be, that they should be allowed to uh, access. And the other thing in the state of Alaska anyways, is that when you have Anchorage, yes, Anchorage should be able to support itself, but it's the entire rural Alaska that develops the resources. Anchorage does the transactions, but Anchorage doesn't build anything. And so, True. so it is every all of the wealth comes from rural Alaska. It flows through Anchorage, and then, you know, I hate to say it the way I say it, but in these transaction centers, basically Anchorage is the middleman, and they're skimming some off of the top, and that's why there's a, there's a lots of uh, there becomes a lot of problems. I don't know what you think about that, but uh,
1: well, I think you know what what you're really getting at is the, you know the root cause is it, it's not the predisposition like you reference that some people would, would say in reference to native populations it, it boils down to poverty you know poverty is is the root cause of, of why people become addicted or why they end up homeless you know the people who were breaking into our apartment building uh, they were white you know they they, they weren't native um, so it it's it's a it's a poverty issue it's not well you know Alaska natives that's just how they are or Native Americans that's that's how they are, which was, was really offensive about what Jennifer Johnston, the representative, said that I wrote about a few weeks ago, as far as what she said, they didn't pay the dividend now instead of the fall because they didn't feel like they could trust the villages with that much money. Yeah, and that's I think trash. that that sort of parochial, that sort of, uh, not, not parochial is the wrong word, uh, patronizing attitude towards the native population, that, well, we can't give them that because the, they'll waste it or not know how to use it or or whatever, and that sort of attitude obviously permeates within the legislature. I mean, it's sort of the definition of institutional racism. Uh, I mean, there you have the House Finance Co-Chair whose opinion is shared by other members of the legislative leadership, uh, expressing that openly. That no, we didn't we didn't pay that because it would be too much money in the villages. So I, I think that you're I think you're onto something in that you know institutional neglect, institutional um, you know sort of robbing of opportunities uh, has, has been a big problem and I think you know that the, that's why I think the native corporations that have received the land allotment that do make you know literally billions of dollars a year in revenue uh, need to be I think bigger partners in this and I think that they did join in I think there was around a40 million dollar pledge over five years between Providence Hospital, Widener Apartments. Rasmussen, um, and, and I think the, the native corporations are all chipping in some money on that as well. But, uh, you know, you, you have to figure that a lot of these people are shareholders in various native corporations. And so where is their well-being responsibility from a corporate standpoint to help their, their people, their shareholders that are in poverty, that are homeless, that are addicted in Anchorage? And yeah. so I think that's another thing that people look at it and say, well, you know, we have these multi-billion dollar corporations that are benefiting from the resource development, whether it's NANA, whether it's Bristol Bay, whether it's ASRC, whether it's Doyon. Uh, they, they're all bringing in, you know, literally billions of dollars in revenue. Uh, and so I think their role has to be greater in taking care of the people who are in such dire straits, not only just in Anchorage, but, but in rural Alaska as well.
0: Yeah, I, I think that there would... I think that there's a reasonable pushback from from that, uh, from that position where there they are corporations. There are some things like eight a contracting. There are some benefits to that. There you know, et cetera. But their the responsibility is really the profit of their company. It, it, you know if you're if you happen to be a shareholder in. BP it doesn't mean that they owe you anything uh, they may owe you a dividend um, yeah if they're a dividend paying company and but their their responsibility is first uh, to their to pay the dividend and then to the profit of their company and I don't know if they necessarily need to do any uh, so they're not obliged to uh, you know assist socially but <clears throat> but overall in that, you know where my where my point was is that even even the state the state owns a lot of land there's municipal trust land there's the, these lands that could be developed because costs in in the villages are just astronomical and then if if you don't want to pay out the dividend to the villages because people are going to to waste it i i just i, I just don't think that that's very accurate i mean how I don't see I don't see where you get there. That was kind of offensive to me. I, I just don't I, I don't see it when when I travel somewhere. I mean, if you're if you're in Aniac or Kaliganek or something, I don't know how you're going to waste your your dividend outside of using it to pay some of your pay some of your bills and maybe pay for your heating oil because unfortunately, sure, and, and that's the
1: thing too, and because it's not just a village problem. There's there's a certain percentage of people in the entire state that are not necessarily going to spend their dividend wisely uh but that is not a reason to not trust the people who will spend it wisely um and and that's what they were
0: (laughs) jennifer johnson has the benefit of having natural gas delivered to her home to where she turns on the thermometer and she gets very cheap 16 cents a kilowatt hour because the state has funded cook inlet natural gas oil credits now, whether or yeah. not you like the oil credits, a big portion of the state doesn't benefit from those oil credits, um, or from the natural gas credits for developing Cook Inlet. So, um, she she may bene- She may be. She may not have to pay for for heating oil. Maybe she used to at one point. But you know, the whole state needs to be somewhat together. There's, a, I mean, there's obvious there's obvious economic reasons why you would take money, put it into people's pocket in the near term. It's the reason that the uh, what was what the financial council with, uh, former Senator baggage, former governor Parnell, everybody has said that federally, we've said put money in people's pockets so that they can stay afloat. I mean, it just seems to make sense to me, but you know, that's, that's just where we're at as a state.
1: Well, I definitely agree with you on that, you know, because I'm not a dividend first person. Um, But in this particular situation, you know, especially when you look at the way people have struggled with the, the, the small business loan program, the PPP program, or even just getting the IRS their information to get their stimulus payment. And here the state of Alaska, or even just working with the state unemployment office, uh, which was overwhelmed. And here we have a mechanism, infrastructure already set up to put money in everybody's bank account within two weeks, most likely. And they didn't do it. And they were perfectly fine with letting people wait on the federal government to get their act together or waiting on the PPP program to get back, stood back up or, or any of these things. And, uh, or waiting for people to get their bank information to the IRS or how, how, how everything, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who, who is, were a month into filing for unemployment they still hit, hadn't seen a check. Yeah. And the state had every ability to, to step in and, and use the tools that were available to help people out and they didn't do it because of people like Jennifer Johnson. And I think that's one thing that people should be, I think people should be upset about.
0: So in the, just, we'll, we'll wrap this up just quickly and and we'll touch on this one quickly. Maybe sometime we'll talk about it again down the, down the road. And, And thanks for, thanks for spending some time with me today, Andy. But, um, with our with our budget deficit here's here's the reality we're we're probably going to be collecting less than a billion dollars a year in royalties and, and tax i mean that's, yeah. that's what we're going to collect in our in our taxes in our royalty share our investment income is going to be about 3 billion ish um so right. one we're we're going to be at sitting at about 4 billion dollars in revenue our unrestricted general fund Spend was about four point six billion yep. this year. So if we go oil tax or uh, PFD zero plus income tax, we might be able to spend the size of of increase that we that, that we're used to. Um, there is no question. After, and I I talked to Elijah Verhagen, who's running for District Six right now. He said. That, uh, and he claimed in episode, in the, just the last episode, episode 16, he claimed that during the testimony, it was 90%, more than likely 90% ish of people in support of paying out the spring dividend. And they didn't do it. And so it, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, your public testimony, it doesn't have anything to do with this. The dividend's going to go to zero. Absolutely. And when the dividend goes to zero, and some people will say, well, you know, at least we got the corpus. When the dividend goes to zero, it will be very rational for people. I would think the same thing. If, if we have $60 billion, you need to take that money and you need to start investing in infrastructure. You need to start doing deferred maintenance in schools. And some people say, really? "I 100 agree." Well, that's not what's going to happen. Well, North Dakota started a a fund, and when oil prices tanked, they had, you know, they started a fund for a couple of years. When when oil prices tanked in 2016, they immediately said, "We need to take this money, and we need to use it to update all of our schools, because this is a rainy day fund, and it's raining." As soon as the dividend goes to zero, we will begin to quickly spend down the corpus. And people think, well, there's 58 billion, there's 65 billion, that's half. I mean, there's people in this country that have that kind of wealth. It's nothing. It, it, I mean, it, it's it nothing when it comes to if our revenue really is going to be four billion going into the future, we can blow through that so fast. Um, and and I think that's what's going to happen.
1: I I think we're you're right. we we're in a very precarious sort of position because if you look at even when the legislature comes back next year and if they really start looking at tax options, uh, putting tax options on the table to close the gap, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to even implement that kind of a program probably until January 1st, 2022. You know, you're probably going to do it on a calendar year. You're not going to start collecting an income tax uh, on July one. 2021, which would be the start of the next fiscal year. So uh, so even if you did something like a tax, you would be looking at a long lead time before even any revenue starts rolling in from it. So that doesn't even give you any sort of immediate help in terms of the budget situation. And then so you do look at the possibility of having to exceed the 5% draw. On the permanent fund, because the capital budget or the capital, or sorry, the constitutional budget reserve can't. You, you, there's not, it's not really there anymore to fill. If you're 500 million dollars short, you really can't pull that out of the constitutional budget reserve uh, without taking it down to a level where it, it makes it difficult to do the day-to-day cash management uh, for the state. So the state's got a lot of a lot of problems, and they and and we're paying the price for the inaction back in 2016 because, yeah, that was, I guess that was four years ago. And, and that was and when they burned. First...
0: And 17 Sure.
1: And, and, and 2016, was when, uh, 2016 was when the, the, the POMV, the, the draw on the fund was first put on the table and it would have set a thousand dollar dividend for the next, for the three following years and using 5% of the permanent fund earning or permanent fund value. Now, if they had, and that got all hung up because it passed the Senate, and then the House. Basically, there was a, a basically a bipartisan opposition coalition be- between the Republicans who didn't want to have a smaller dividend, and Democrats who would only accept a reduced dividend if they raised taxes on the oil companies. So there was a bipartisan coalition of, for very different reasons, that killed that bill in the House in 2016. And then you had a bunch of people go out and run for reelect. And then Walker subsequently vetoed the dividend down to $1,000 that year. And I had actually written uh, maybe a couple weeks before he did that. I said that he should do it and use that as leverage to try to get the 5% draw approved. Uh, and the House didn't go along. He went ahead and vetoed it. And then all these people went out and ran for re-election, uh, campaign basically against Walker, for vetoing the dividend. I mean, people like Kathy Diesel in particular. I mean, Kathy Diesel voted for the thousand dollar dividend under the under the draw in twenty sixteen. And then when Walker vetoed the dividend out to a thousand, well, she was running campaign ads saying Governor Walker stole your money and I support Senator Dunleavy's plan to get your money back. So so it was, it was much easier to go demagogue the issue in twenty sixteen and seventeen instead of doing what needed to be done. And if they had passed that in twenty sixteen. You would have sustained the constitutional budget reserve. You wouldn't have had to draw full four billion dollars just for a year. You could have taken some from the earnings reserve, paid out a thousand dollar dividend, taken a little bit more from the CDR, and we would still have billions of dollars in the CDR. Well, but because that's just made of me. the politics, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have had. To, I know for sure you wouldn't have had to draw four billion dollars for a single year budget out of the CDR. If they had if they had passed that back in in 2016, you would have gone into the 2017 budget with some earnings reserves, some CDR, and then as oil revenue picked up, you could have reduced all the draws kind of across the board. Uh, so the, the politics of this four and five years ago is why we're in the situation now. So uh, it's it's hard to know where they can go because they're really kind of out of options. You either you pass an income tax; it's going to be very difficult to get through. Uh, through the house, uh, which won't even kick in for another six months, and then you'll only get six months of revenue into that fiscal year for it. And there's no really no way to, to fill even the budget gap to, to raise, say, five hundred million dollars to an income tax, you're not gonna do that in six months. Not, you might you'd have to set an income tax at to collect that much revenue. So it basically all comes back to the same thing as having to draw more than five percent from the value of the earnings reserve, even without paying a dividend. So so the so the state and the legislatures have, have gotten themselves in, into quite a pickle now, and, and it is hard to see which way you go out um, without sort of some some level of layoffs within state government or some reduction in services. Uh, but every time you try to cut anything uh, from the budget, there's some stakeholder group that's going to come out and say, no, not me, not me, not me. And then by the time it's all said and done, all those different stakeholder groups have added up to oppose this, that, or the other part of a revenue package, and then it, and then it doesn't go anywhere. So um, you, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very tough outlook for the state right
0: now. In this in this budget crisis, we still have a council for the aging uh, council for aging. Some of these some of these things that we do, um, there's already national information. I mean, do we do we really need to study some of these things? And one of the so that's the, the problem. In conclusion, is that uh, this happens everywhere. I believe that this happens everywhere at least is that we had a lot of money and we built out an unsustainable Alaska. And unfortunately for us, it's time it's time to come back to reality. We have all enjoyed an extremely high standard of living, especially given our, uh, our isolation from supply chains in the lower 48, our climate, etc. cetera. We have been able to enjoy an extremely high standard of living. And unfortunately... All of the infrastructure that we've built is not necessarily sustainable, and so the the Alaska that we're going to move into, we can move into it, and uh, there will be people that that enjoy it. But it might not be an Alaska with seven hundred and fifty thousand people or six hundred sixty one thousand PFD applicants from from last year. It might not be an Alaska yeah. that has has all of the benefits and all of the luxuries that that we've come used to enjoying. You know, that's that's probably what it's going to look like.
1: I, I think you're. I mean, I think you're right. Uh, you know, we are going to see out migration from this. I mean, we've already got seventy thousand unemployment claims. That's twenty percent of the state workforce. Yes,
0: yeah, um,
1: insane. And especially when you look at the, the oil field, you're talking about six figure a year jobs up on the slope that are that are being wiped out right now. And we saw this happen uh, in the construction sector during the recession, where uh, there was a tremendous amount of out-migration. The capital budgets went down to basically the federal minimum. And there's a lot of people that left, a lot of trades, skilled tradespeople that left. And the lower 48 economy obviously has boomed over the last three years. And those people aren't coming back to Alaska. So even if you wanted to uh, have some infrastructure projects, there's, a, there's also a lack of workforce because it's left the state. We've had sort of a skill drain over the last, three years and that's a big long-term problem is you have out migration of skilled educated workforce
0: and a massive in yeah. migration of people who understand that because of the geography of Alaska because of the population of Alaska and because of the former lots of money in Alaska that we are no longer attracting people that have come north to the future as they would say and trying to build this this great last frontier mentality that i mean that's what drove this state for the last 20 30 40 years um now it's m- much more the the uh, public uh, nonprofit organization types of people that can come here and have a disproportionate impact very early on as compared to if they were living in D.C. or, or somewhere where they're going to have to compete more, it's really easy to come and control this area up here. And uh, so there's also a, a difference in the base population.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, Fairbanks is going to definitely benefit from all those F-35s being <laughs> up there. It's going to be influx. But, but, you know, the other part of that, too, though, is like now, you know, how do you pay for, say, now you need some additional elementary schools or teachers or what have you. Uh, how, does, how do you pay for the services that some of those folks may need. So there's sort of a the double-edged sword almost.
0: <laughs> well, and so some people would say that there, there's kind of a curse to having resources. One of those curses is that we don't tax ourselves. I'm not saying that taxes are good or bad, but I think that at least in theory, you can consider that if we had a an income tax and a sales tax and all of these other taxes that the idea that we would be spending the the level that we spend right now would be different, but because we have no taxes, there is no incentive to say, "Uh, I don't think we're going to pay for that. Um, and so, so that is, that is something that at least in theory is the way that it goes, but only time will tell. But, uh, hopefully as time goes on, I would like to talk to you some other time about, uh, I think we got, we're going to have a lot of information about, uh, Oil, what happens with oil, and some, uh, I think a lot of people are not taking into consideration that oil's not, not forever here. It's, it's not forever. At some point, the the cost of production is going to going to attract people to just say we're done. And um, the the cuts ConocoPhillips have, have made are scary. The the uh, proration scary, and uh, yeah, tough time for the for that. Uh, sector absolutely because you know
1: conoco conoco lost billions of dollars over the years from 2015 16 17 when the price was low and they went you know they sharpened their pencils they got to work and they were very proud of saying we can make these projects work at 40 dollars a barrel which was a huge sort of reduction in the break-even point uh but yeah we're at what 10 12 <laughs> i right. mean there's, there's no pencil sharpening that gets you to a point where, where you can make money at $12 a barrel not just here, but anywhere.
0: Well, it, it costs um, no, us shares over shares. $10, <laughs> costs $10 yeah. to get it to the West coast. So whatever right. price that right. you're getting, you've got to do that. And then, yeah. And then you've got your cost of operations on top of that, which is, you know, 10 or $15 a barrel. And then if you start to make money, you need to pay, but before you pay for your operations, you need to pay the state it's royalty share, and blah, 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 blah. It's, it's very difficult to make money. Uh, in oil, if oil's not at least forty or fifty dollars a barrel, wherever you are, sometimes maybe you can do it at thirty, but you're not making very mm-hmm. much.
1: No, um, and at this point, they would take breaking even <laughs> in a heartbeat. Uh, but it's it's very difficult to expect any business um, to to sell a product they're losing perhaps thirty dollars per barrel, and you're selling at a rate of hundreds of thousands per day. Uh, that's just it's just not realistic. To expect any of that uh, to be able to be sustainable. Uh, Now, I think that, you know, the the amount of uncertainty, because back in 2016 when prices crashed, it wasn't so much derived from, you know, oversupply. It was a demand thing, but now we have an oversupply and a lack of demand. So it's the two things. And then, you know, Alaska oil has been somewhat insulated because it goes to the West Coast, but Saudi Arabia has been flooding the West Coast with cheap oil for the last month. And so that's where you have seen Alaska, even where the, the Brent benchmark that is typically priced very close to, if not more, Brent is something like 22 right now. And Alaska is 10 because Saudi Arabia sold a whole bunch of oil in the West Coast refineries at 20 to $25 a barrel. So now Alaska oil is getting completely sort of worked over by this price war. And that's going to take some time to unwind. Uh, and then you have to think about well, how long it's going to be before people start flying again. Or they start driving more that sort of thing so you're looking at when does the demand picture start to improve
0: and so, some of uh, those are some of those are forever um, and we're not we're not taking that into account some of the some of the demand because it doesn't matter what we do in alaska it matters what happens in the world and if businesses have made investments on having people work from home there's no reason to take that take those investments into to remove them um you know, those oh exactly
1: are really- I think the telework you know the idea of, of spending an hour you know an hour a day each way commuting to a downtown office building so, I think that's going to be increasingly um, a thing of the past and then you think about commercial real estate what could happen I mean if you're a developer with a with a bunch of loans on commercial office space right now I would really be sweaty in terms of when you, when business owners start looking at what they pay in rent and utilities and internet and, and printer toner and all this kind of stuff to have a like physical office working versus, hey, we can our productivity is exactly the same now as it was before and everybody's at home. Um, do we really need this much square footage of office space? So I think there's a lot of fall on effects in this that are going to be very interesting um, and- to see as they play out
0: during the during the 1986 crash i think you know that 86 crash is is the best parallel um, as far as fear goes but during those days uh, alaska was producing 25 30% of the country's oil now we produce 2 yeah. to 3%. so it's not like alaska's a big loss if if we decide to shut it down the only reason that we're not going to shut down the pipeline is because of the cost of getting rid of the pipeline and cleaning it up as soon, right. as soon as that becomes feasible, I, I don't think companies are going to keep doing businesses here. Uh, I think that there are politicians on both sides of the aisle that are opposed. They have reasonable fears about our environment, and that they're going to they're going to want to avoid drilling on federal lands. So there's going to be a little incentive to stay here drilling. But the Alaska Journal of Commerce Business, uh, the business newspaper. I love it. And Andrew, thank you for being on the show. It's one of, one of my longer ones. So I just want to wrap it up on there and I hope to talk to you soon.
1: Well, thank you very much, Case. I enjoyed the conversation and, and be glad to join you again sometime.
0: All right. Sounds good. Thanks.